You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. So John chapter 1, 6 through 18. So, you know, when we're all kind of snowed in and freezing, and the kids are going bonkers and everything, we're all trying to figure out what to do. And I guess as a preacher, I'm thinking, how can I use this as a sermon illustration? So I figured it out. So here we go. Uh, So some things that you can observe when it's snowing and when it actually snows really well. Not that kind of flaky stuff that melts after an hour, but actually lays down, you know, six, nine inches or so. The snow, when it came down, you saw it blankets everywhere, right? It's everywhere. And the second thing in my observation is that when the sun shines, when the sun actually comes out after it's snowed, the sun brightens everything. Everything is so much brighter with the snow to the point where it's often blinding. It really is. You go outside and you can't see anything because of how much the snow reflects the light. So there's a a difference when you're experiencing the snow, say, in in the daytime versus nighttime. Right In the daytime, the snow is remarkably bright. The atmosphere is remarkably bright um, because it has the full uh, light of the sun shining on it. At night, while the sky or while everything is brighter, it's pretty neat to see, the snow is actually more dim because the light that is shining is the sun that is reflecting off of the moon. So it's a partial lighting, if you will. It's dim. There's two phrasings that we're going to see in John's gospel in these verses today. One is the true light, and the second is grace upon grace. True light and grace upon grace. So here's the truth of light and grace here, bringing in this whole illustration of snow. Grace covers us like a blanket like a blanket of snow. It covers us. And the true light of Christ reflects remarkably bright off of our grace-covered souls. And Jesus is the full, true, radiant light of God that shines bright and illuminates His grace towards us in our lives. And so while snow has its seasons of coming and going, and we see it's going, and hopefully, in my opinion, I hope it stays gone. The sun sets and the sun rises, and even the light of the sun at times can cause the snow to melt away. But it is not so when it comes to the grace and true light of Christ, the Gospel. Grace is forever falling and forever covering our sins. And the true light of Christ is forever burning bright. It's never setting, only to rise the next day. But it's always shining bright, giving us life that we constantly need. And so it is the grace of God that opens our eyes to the true light of Christ. And it is the true light of Christ that illuminates His never-ending grace towards us. They work together. That is, His true light and that grace upon grace. And so here's what I want you to see today in the passage. It is this. The true light of Christ and His never-ending grace. The true light of Christ and His never-ending grace. If you were with us on, on the internet last Sunday uh, when we had a cancel service here, Uh, Me and the kiddos worked through verses 6 through 8, talking about John the Baptist. And so I'm going to hit on this about 40,000 feet here, but really focus on verses 9 through 18. But just to recap, let me read verses 6 and 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. If we remember verses 1 through 5, this is a, it's an amazing introduction of who Jesus is. John, the Gospel writer, introduces Jesus as the Word. And he introduces the Word as 
the Word who was with God, who was God, who is Creator God, and is the light. And so Jesus is the Word. He is who John the Apostle is talking about. And then he transitions in these verses 6 through 8 saying, hey, there's another guy named John, which is not the same person as the writer here, but this is John the Baptist. And he was sent from God. A man sent from God. Completely different than Jesus being sent from God because John is a man. And he is not God. And Jesus is God. And so this man is John. And he comes to bear witness. That means he is... He is a witness who can give testimony to the fact that Jesus is God. He is creator. He is the light. He is the fulfillment of all the scripture. And so John the Baptist, being a cousin of Jesus and also set apart for this purpose as forerunner, comes bearing witness about the light for this purpose, that all might believe through him. John the Baptist doesn't come saying, hey, guys, he doesn't seize the opportunity to play off of Jesus's stardom, right? You know how sometimes we, we like to say, yeah, I'm related to such and such who's a rock star or who's really popular. Like we like to show how we are potentially related to somebody famous. John the Baptist doesn't play that card at all. His only objective in life is that Jesus increase and that he decrease and that by his message, John the Baptist's message, that we would believe in Jesus Christ. And so John was very clear. Look, I am not the light. I'm not the one you need to believe and to follow. But I am here to bear witness about the light. And that is Jesus Christ. And so the testimony of John in those verses is about Jesus being the true light and being uh, the true light with a never-ending grace. And so these verses 9 through 18 that we'll read in just a moment are a continued introduction really to who Jesus is. John the Apostle is really laying out the continued theme of what is going to be the rest of this book, right? And remember, the main point of John in writing this is so that we would believe in Jesus, that he is the Savior and that there is life in his name. So we're going to continue to test that thesis, if you will, as we read these verses. Verses 9 through 18 are really, I would say, uh, much of the ministry of John the Baptist testifying, here's who Jesus is. Let me lay this out for you. And so let me read verses 9 through 18. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he, come, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God. Who is at the Father's side, He, that is Jesus, has made Him known. Father, I pray that Your Word would be illuminated in our hearts, our minds, souls. That we would see the truth. That we would understand the truth. Believe it. That we would live in the grace that You have given to us by faith in Jesus. Be with us now. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. So I'm breaking this passage down into two sections. The true light and never-ending grace. So verses 9 through 13, the true light. So this is of whom, uh, of whom John the Baptist is bearing witness. The true light. 
This is referring not to true as opposed to false, as we might think, right? Like there's a true math problem, like 2 plus 2 is 4, that's true, it's not 2 plus 2 is 6, right? And it's not also indicating that everything else in life is false, and finally some truth has come down in the form of Jesus, as though there's never been any ounce of truth on the planet ever before, But rather, what John is communicating here, that is, John the writer, he's communicating this, that Jesus is the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And that makes sense, because once we get down to verse 16 in the context, John talks about Jesus uh, uh, giving His grace, and He's giving it from His fullness. Meaning... Jesus is the full radiance, the full glory, the full word, the full creator, the full light, the full truth of God. Jesus is unlike the world where some things are true and some things are false. But with Jesus, all things are true and have their amen. And so there's nothing about Jesus that is partial. Nothing about him that is partial. He is fully, wholly, true Light. That's what John the writer is getting at here. In this true light, which gives light to everyone, John is now communicating this reality that Jesus has come into human history. Right? This light, which he is testifying to, gives light to everyone. Jesus comes down into human history, and he comes specifically after the work of John the Baptist. The writer here, John, doesn't get into great detail of John the Baptist's ministry, not even talking about Jesus being baptized, which is kind of like the key event in John the Baptist's life, right? That he gets to baptize the Son of God. That's not even written here. But after this, after this baptism, we see Jesus coming in. Uh, He goes and gets tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. And then from that point on, his ministry begins. And the Gospel of Matthew records it this way. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee to the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is the light that has come to everyone. That a light has dawned upon the Jews and even the Gentiles. Jesus comes in preaching the kingdom of God. Repent. And Jesus is the true light. And He comes and He is the true light to everyone. Jesus is not coming as a partial light to some and a true light. He is the true light wherever He goes. The difference is not Jesus, but humanity. Some of humanity rejects this light. Some of this humanity doesn't recognize this light. And some of humanity actually receives and believes in this light. And that's what John goes on to say. Jesus was coming into the world. And he was, verse 10, in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And let's pause for a moment, because it's really easy to just kind of skip through that reality that Jesus came down and not actually reflect on that. God came down. The light was given. The light was given. And we see right away As the light was given, as God came down, the creator of all things, the world did not even know him. For 30 years, Jesus was on earth. Prior to his ministry, the world didn't even really know him. The world in the time of Jesus was so self-absorbed, it didn't even recognize the Messiah walking around him. It wasn't as though he had changed or that the message of Christmas all of a sudden vanished like a vapor until he started his ministry. I mean, we celebrate Christmas and it is very clear in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament that the Messiah has come. And yet even still for the next three decades of his life, 
the world is completely blind to him, and though he is right there before him. And it's not until, I guess, he is baptized and he begins to preach more boldly and publicly than that the world begins to truly see who he is, if you will. And some things I've been thinking about lately, I've been reading a very dense book by Carl Truman, a theologian called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, talking about modernity, post-modernity, the way that we think, especially in the Western world and as American Christians. And the idea, and I am really paraphrasing because he's so smart, I don't want to like, I just have to paraphrase because his, his words are so high for me. The idea is that we have become so satisfied in manufacturing or creating meaning in our own lives, we will go to the extreme of manufacturing things like our own gender, our own orientations, our own sexuality, just to find meaning. Right? We no longer seek God in these things. We now create and manufacture our own meaning for us. We look at ourselves really as the creator to behold. And we do that instead of looking at God who is the creator. And so that, f- that framework of thinking is it's prideful and it'll stop at nothing to make society really bend to individual desires. Now, to be sure, things like sexuality and gender and those things are all one category and it's a big one in our culture But we do these things with our jobs, with our families, with just about anything. We create our own meanings. We find our own identities and satisfactions based on how we feel with our job. If our job doesn't make us feel a certain way, if we're not satisfied with it, then we move on. If our families are frustrating to us and we don't get what we want, then we move on. Right? If we don't get satisfaction in our sexuality or certain roles in life and how those things make us feel, we move on, right? We'll move on from a job. We'll move on from our spouse. We'll move on from those things until we can have new meaning of satisfaction. And we will make the world around us um, see that they need to bend to what makes us feel good about ourselves, right? This is why you begin to see on a more cultural level uh, systems and institutions being challenged to meet and pander to individual individuals. And not just on an extreme case. Even with us in the room. Even though we're Christians and, and uh, conservatives, if you will, we still want things done our way and on our time and on our terms. And so it doesn't matter about reality, science, logic, morality. We keep our feelings and our emotions at the center of all things. That's what matters. And if those things aren't met, we don't want anything to do with it. In a theological sense, Western humanity has become self-sufficient, self-focused beings that take God out of focus, because that's what we were talking about last week. right? John the Baptist wants to keep Jesus in focus. And so what we do is we take God out of focus and we put ourselves in clear focus. And so I illustrate this point because it should be no surprise or shock to anyone that the world would not recognize God when God showed up. I don't even know if we would recognize God if God showed up right now. And so the true light comes and the world does not even know him. No surprise there. But the true light is given. And there's another group of people, verse 11. And he is, this light is not received. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. This is the Jews. Those are his people. The people of God throughout the Old Testament, right? That God was the the God of, right? The, the God who gave, uh, my goodness, the people that God would give kings, Judges, prophets, these people, the Jews, they were anticipating a Messiah and yet they did not receive him. Montgomery Boyce, theologian, puts it like this. Like all men, Israel found what they wanted to find in the word of God and ignored the rest. They opened the Old Testament. 
There were the prophecies that told how the Messiah was to be beaten and killed, bearing the iniquities of the people. They should have understood, for they had the history of the sacrifices in Israel to help them interpret these things. Yet, they flipped over these pages and instead chose ones that spoke of Christ's triumph that they talked about and anticipated. So the Jews that did not receive but rejected Jesus here, they flipped over and ignored the pages that spoke about the King who would come who would have to die for the sins of His people. They ignored that and all they wanted was triumphant, victorious King Messiah. And this Jesus didn't fit that picture. But Jesus comes as the true light. The whole truth of God's Word. The pages that they would flip over, Jesus comes as the whole truth of that. The Bible prepares us for this sort of rejection. It's not as though this comes in a vacuum or out of the blue. You see this from Genesis to Malachi. You see in the book of Genesis, Joseph, the youngest brother at the time, he was rejected by his brothers because God gave him a dream that he would rule over his brothers and his brothers. And even his dad were frustrated and they wanted to kill him. They decided not to, but they rejected him and sold him off into slavery. Moses, a prophet, uh, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, was rejected by Israel. Why did you bring us out here so that we could die in Egypt, Jeremiah, a prophet, rejected by the exiles, and so on. And so this would be no different for Jesus, one who was rejected for us. And so ever since the fall, God's people have been rejecting God and rejecting His servants. It is no surprise when Jesus comes onto the scene and He too was rejected. But then there are those, verse 12, that received the light. There were those who didn't know Him, right? There were those who essentially rejected Him. And then there are those who received Him, verse 12, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name. That is, receiving and believing versus rejecting and distrusting, right? So how one becomes a child of God, as we'll see in a moment, is through faith, belief, right? Faith in what? Faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verses 1 through 5, that He is the Son of God, that He is God, right? That He is Creator, that He comes and He dies for the sins of the world, that He resurrected from the grave, and that by faith in Him you would have eternal life. These are the means by which we would be saved and the prerequisite for what makes us a child of God. And notice that for a moment as we are about to enter into that. John the writer here doesn't say you have to be a Jew or you know you have to have this much of the Bible memorized or you have to be this kind of a good person or you have to do X, Y, or Z. No, the prereq is faith. Receiving, believing, not rejecting, not ignoring, not flipping over some of, you know, picking and choosing what part of Jesus you want to believe and not believe, but no, believing completely in the Son of God. And it is not a difficult thing. And so those who would receive and believe, it says, He gave the right to become children of God. And so John goes on to explain what that means. And often it's good for us to understand a meaning when we understand what that meaning is not. And this is what John does. These are children who are born, verse 13, not of blood, meaning a physical birth, right? We all are pretty familiar with physical births. We have a lot of children in this room. And some are not here because they have given birth to children and they can't get out of their house right now, right? And so the term blood is referring to the life of a person. Blood is synonymous with Life. So it's not by just being alive, being physically born, that you all of a sudden are a child of God. We hear that in common language, right? We're all children of God. Okay, sure, there's this common understanding that God has made us all image bearers, but we're talking about a unique, a unique child of God, one that is born again by faith in Jesus, not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, he says. And that means what we desire in terms of our natural appetites. Our natural appetites are evil, are sinful. We desire ourselves more than everything. We've already talked about this. But this also includes our emotions, our feelings. And so what we're getting at here is somebody who feels excited about or is emotional towards wanting to be a child of God, that isn't enough to become a child of God. This is better illustrated in Hebrews chapter 6, talking about those who were among the, the congregation, tasted in the goodness of the Holy Spirit. Right? They were there. They witnessed all these good things of God. And then they fell away. And it is impossible for them to be restored back to the kingdom of God. Right? You can't emotionally bring yourself to become a child of God. So not by blood, not by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man. Boyce says it this way. This means that no one can become a child of God by determination or by the powers of positive thinking. I'm just going to make it happen. right? As Americans, and even myself, I'm very driven. I'm just going to make this happen. We're just going to get this done. We're going to move on to the next thing. That's what he is saying you cannot do to become a child of God. You can't just will yourself into this. Instead, our new birth is grounded in faith in Jesus Christ alone. And this is good news for us, guys. It doesn't matter if you're born a Jew, a Gentile, man or woman. It doesn't matter how excited or not excited you are about God. It doesn't matter if you think you have enough strength in you to, to do something for Him or not. None of that stuff is what brings you to being a child of God. But it is God who brings you to being a child of God. He is one who pours His grace out. He is the one who opens your eyes to His true light. And you believe in Him by faith. And you turn from your sins. And so that means He is in control of our salvation. He is the one who saves us. We have no ability to earn any sort of credit for our salvation. It is God and God alone. And this is why this is good news as well. Because if it is the power of God that makes us become children of God, then what power is there that can take us from being a child of God to no longer being a child of God? If we are adopted as His, is there something that we can do to will ourselves out? That we can, um, we can change from being a child of God to not being a child of God? Is there something we can do to reverse the adoption papers? There's nothing. So that means God opens our eyes. He grants us that faith. He pours that grace upon us. He gives us vision of the true light, which is Christ. And we are forever His, held in His hands. John 10 will talk about it. Who can snatch them out of my hand? So this is what it means to be reborn. And... and uh, we're actually going to talk about this later in the gospel. I just forgot the, the Jew who would ask Jesus this question about, you know, what does it mean to be reborn? Does that mean I have to enter into the womb again? No, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a new creation. If you remember in verses 1 through 5, when Jesus uh, being recognized as the creator, not only did he create all things physical, right? That everything was created through him, but he would come as the Word who would recreate all things. Right? This is a spiritual new birth. Instead of wiping us out and starting over with new people, He's taking the same broken people and He's remaking them. This is the story of recreation. God, through Christ, is making us new. This is what it means to be born again. Sometimes we forget that we were reborn. That we've been made new. And we're constantly being made new. Think of that time when your eyes were opened. And I understand some of you grew up in the church and it's not exactly like there was this point in time. But over time, your eyes began to open more and more and more. You began to see the grace of God more and more and more. I can remember when I came to faith more vividly. 
And I often forget that of who I was and who I am now. But maybe you are forgetting that as well. We need not to forget how God, through Christ Jesus, has made us a new person, a new being, how we have been born again. And so maybe you need to take some time to just worship Him and be thankful to Him for how you have been made new. And look, if Jesus is the whole truth and nothing but the truth, the fullness of light, then what we are bearing witness to is that Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. He's not a partial Savior. He's an all-sufficient Savior. There's nothing partial about Him. It has, um, It is all, everything He is, everything that He would do would be fully accomplished. Right? There's nothing partial about Him. There's nothing even partial about His witness. But you and I as witnesses, right, as disciples, are we partial in our witness of the Gospel of Jesus? Do we hold back? Are we partial in our belief? Like, like the Jews who didn't recognize Him, you know, there's parts of Jesus that we accept and parts that we don't. We're partial in our thinking. Or are we believing in the full truth of Christ? So look, the true light has been given. Are you receiving it and are you believing it? Do you have faith in Christ? And who among us has not known this light? Has not known this truth? Who among us has maybe rejected the light? And I'll say, if you're hearing my voice, whether it's here or on the internet or wherever it is, you have zero excuses to refuse, to reject, to even know who Jesus is. These words are clear. These words are plain. Not just my word. The clear word of God has been uh, read to you. So this plain understanding of God, His word stands as a witness that you know the truth. That the truth is here. And if you do not receive and you do not believe, you are rejecting God and you're rejecting a Savior. And so I'm calling you to receiving and believing, to waking up to the light of Christ, to come forth from the grave and live and follow Jesus. And that might be someone here in this room, but maybe you know a lost friend or a lost family member that you have been afraid to say anything because you didn't want to seem like that Christian to them. But listen, you are a witness to the light of Christ. You are doing them no favors by trying to be friends with them and trying to be cool with them. Show them the way. Show them the truth. Show them the life. Call them to faith. Call them to receiving Christ. So repent of your sin. Turn away from the darkness of this world. Turn away from the evils of your flesh and the desires of your flesh. Turn away from those things that have been blinding you so and turn to Jesus who has, Lord willing, awakened you. And maybe that is you. And maybe now it's time for you to confess that faith publicly. To show the world that you too are a light Right? Because of the light of Christ, now you are a light, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And so now you have a responsibility to share your faith publicly, maybe through the waters of baptism. So who among us is needing to share their faith? Who among us is needing to express that, uh, that faith in obedience? And so when the true light came to the world, in what way was that light seen? In what way was He known? Was He experienced? Was He received? And we see that in verses 14 through 18. This never-ending grace. The true light and now never-ending grace. Verses 14 through 18. And the Word, referring back to verses 1 through 5, And the Word became flesh 
He is the Word. He is the Creator. He is the light. Jesus became human. Remember we said in the first five verses that there's nothing about Jesus that was ever created. Like Jesus is eternal. He's God. But the only thing about Him that was created is when He became a man. When He became flesh. And to put it simply, for us to be redeemed, for humans to be redeemed, we needed God to become a human in order to redeem humans. God couldn't just do it from afar. He had to come down. He had to take on flesh. He had to take on sin. And He had to be punished for us. And He came in our place as a substitute, as a sacrifice for us. And that's how He took broken humanity and fixed it. Began to fix it. As I mentioned, He didn't come to just wipe us all out and make new people but He's taking what is broken and making them new. And the Word became flesh. And what? Dwelt upon high? No, dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. John is smart in the way that he's writing, of course, inspired by the Spirit. But that word dwell means to tabernacle, which goes back to the Old Testament Hebrew of the tabernacle. This is imagery taking us back to the book of Exodus when Moses was instructing the people to build a tabernacle. And so God, in other words, tabernacles among us. Meaning God is dwelling among us. He's not apart from us. Right? He's not getting away from us. He's not running from us. He's dwelling among us. He's right in the middle of everything. And so Jesus came. He came down. And think about that. Was He forced? Was He coerced? Was the Father in heaven going, you do this or else? That's kind of what I say all the time. (laughs) Did He do this on His own? How did Jesus do this? Jesus willingly submitted Himself to the will of the Father. It was a good thing for Him to come down. And He was given as a gift of grace to people. And so what does the tabernacle teach us? If we were to dive back into and study the tabernacle in the Old Testament, here are some things that we would learn about the tabernacle. One, it was central for Israel's camp. Everything about the camp of Israel was geographically shaped around the tent, around where God would dwell. And so... The tabernacle is central for Israel's camp. The irony will be, when we hit up Easter, is that Jesus was rejected by His own camp, ultimately as a sacrifice that would be thrown outside the camp. And that's for Easter. But the tabernacle is central for Israel's camp. Next, tabernacle teaches us that this is where the Word of God was preserved. When God would give Moses the Word, the Ten Commandments, the Law, the Word was then preserved within the Holy of Holies, right? And so not only uh, does the nation of Israel center around God, but they also center around His Word. The tabernacle also teaches us that this is the dwelling place of God. We see at the end of the book of Exodus in the 40th chapter how the glory of God covers the whole tabernacle, the whole tent. So the glory of God dwelled among them. It also teaches us this is where God would reveal Himself. He would reveal His Word. He would reveal His glory. So there's nothing about God that's secret here. He's not hiding Himself, right? He's not like, hey, you've got to figure out the Da Vinci Code to figure out what I'm saying. No, He's very clearly and plainly speaking and showing, revealing Himself to His people through the tabernacle. And last, or the last two, is that the tab- tabernacle is the place where sacrifices were made. So for atonement of sin, for worship to God, this is where it would be made. And last, this is the place of all worship. So when you worship God, you come to the tabernacle, which would later be replaced by the temple. That's where you come. That's where you go to worship. Jesus comes onto the scene in the Gospel. And He is the dwelling. 
He is the centerpiece of all life for the children of God. Everything. He is the eternally preserved living Word of God. Word in the flesh. He is eternally dwelling God. He's never leaving nor forsaking. He's not here for a time and then He's gone. He is forever with us. This is why He had to ascend so that He could send His Holy Spirit to dwell in us forever. This is why He said, as He gave the Great Commission, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is also the eternal revelation of God. The Gospel. He's the hope of all the Psalms and the prophets. Everything written in the Bible was pointing to Jesus. He is also the eternal sacrifice for sin, forever washing over our sin with His blood. It's never ending. I love the imagery of 1 Peter 1.1 where His blood is constantly being sprinkled over our sins. There's never a time where the blood of Christ runs out. And last, He is the object and aim of all of our worship. Wherever we go, We always have Him at the center. And this is going to be what Jesus teaches the Samaritan woman at the well. It doesn't matter whether on this hill in Samaria or this hill in Jerusalem, we are raising up or the Father's raising up worshipers who can worship anywhere in spirit and truth. So Jesus tabernacles and dwells among us. So I hope you see that your Old Testament reading as you get in the book of Exodus and learn about the tabernacle is not a waste of time. It has purpose. It has meaning. A perfect fulfillment in Christ. And so, just like the tabernacle, John says, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. We've beheld it. John does this in 1 John as well. Basically saying, look, I was there. I've seen Jesus. I've seen Him transfigured. I've seen Him die. I've seen the resurrection. I am a witness to all of this. So he says, we are witnesses to this glory. This glory that comes from the Father. The glory that Moses was beholding, not necessarily in full perfect face-to-face kind of fashion, but the back of God to Moses as he beheld His glory in such a way that Moses could take on some of the glory and not die. That glory that would consume all of Israel, that could consume Moses in an instant, this is the glory that has come and dwelt among His people. And glory is a manifestation of God's work among His people. So in this case, what we have here is the manifested work of the Father through the Son. So every time God acts and moves and does something, there's a manifestation of His glory. When the tabernacle is made in His glory and He covers the tent, right? In the cloud, there's a manifestation of His glory. It's a weightiness that comes upon the people. When Jesus enters into humanity, He is the full radiance of the glory of God. You have it all right here. And so as the Son is revealed to men that becomes the weighty manifestation among us. That is glory. And as the glory of God covered the tabernacle, so the full glory of the Father covers Jesus as He dwells among sinners. So the world beholds Him. This this tabernacle, this dweller, this Word, this light, this truth, this Savior Jesus who comes full of grace and truth. Grace here, unmerited favor of God towards sinners. It is said in Romans 5, this is a good illustration of grace here, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The favor is that the Father sent His Son Jesus to die for sins. Sinners could not in any way, shape, or form obtain that grace. Grace is given by God to sinners. And this phrasing is unique. He is full of grace and truth, John says. 
does not mean that at one point Jesus was less than full and now He's dwelling on a full tank of grace and truth. But rather, the fullness is what Jesus always is. Grace and truth are not things that have been added to God at some point, but they are who God has been from eternity. Grace and truth. So the great grace and truth of Jesus are, are as eternal, plentiful, and as full as God Himself. This is the full grace and truth of God embodied in Christ Jesus. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. And so stop and think about this. Blind, evil sinners, the first interaction they have, right, is grace and truth. Not vengeance, not wrath, not this pent-up anger. I mean, I, I think about people who might, may have done me wrong in some sort of way, and I continue to hold on to that, and I'm thinking, man, as soon as I see those people, man, I am going to unleash some wrath. Like, I'm going to say something that just like, ugh, gets them right in the gut. And God has had millennia, right, to build up a case against humanity and to come down in the form of Jesus and just let us have it. But He doesn't. He comes down and just washes us over in grace and truth. He is unlike any of us. And this is who John the Baptist is talking about. This is the one. Verse 15, John bore witness about him saying, this is the guy, I'm telling you, he's the one who ranks before me because he was before me. I'm not the guy. This is the guy. For from his fullness, that is his grace and truth, we're in verse 16, we have all received grace upon grace. To put simply, that is grace and more grace. And once you receive that grace, then more grace on top of that will be applied. It's a never-ending, eternal application of grace in our lives. The grace is as eternal as Jesus is Himself. Think about it this way. The ocean, it's constantly forming waves that are constantly crashing on the shore. It never ends, right? It just keeps going 24-7. This is the way it is with grace. Just constantly crashing on the, on the shore of our souls. Just lapping grace on us without ceasing, right? You can go onto a shore and you can write words in the sand right on the shoreline and, and the waves crash on it and wash it away. And so it is with our sin. You can write lust and anger and pride and murder and, and, and theft and the waves of grace come crashing over it, washing it away. This is grace upon grace. And this grace and truth came to us not through a mere man, but through Jesus, He says. Verse 17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Christ. The law through Moses. God uses Moses in the Old Testament to bring His law. His Word to His people. Law being like the Ten Commandments. And you see this also in the book of Leviticus. and Numbers, Deuteronomy. And the law, to just kind of put it very simply, reflects ultimately the nature and the character of God. One. And two, it reveals the sin of man. So the law is given to show that we ultimately don't measure up to the holiness of God. Right? It's not just a bunch of random rules to put in place, you know, do this and don't do that. But it's set up to show that, look, you are not a righteous and holy people on your own. Try to fulfill all these laws. Try to fulfill all these commands and see how close you get. And so in a lot of ways, the law is condemning, though the law is a good thing. And Moses was the mediator. He was the mediator between Israel and God. God would give Moses the word and Moses would take the word to the people and whenever the people needed to petition God, Moses would go and petition on their behalf. But when we look at the law and we look at Moses, both were lacking. Both were lacking. The law, though it was good, it was not enough because all it did was condemn Israel. You can never measure up. You can never keep all of the law perfectly. 
You will always fail at some point. And Moses, he was lacking. He was lacking as a mediator because he was also a lawbreaker. And he wasn't even holy enough to be able to see God face to face and behold the full glory of God without dying. And then Jesus comes onto the scene. Right In the Old Testament, the idea it looks like Israel obeying the law to somehow climb the mountain to be righteous before God. And here in the New Testament, what we're seeing is, no, you can't do that. And so God comes down the mountain bestowing upon us grace. And so the Father sends Jesus, the Word made flesh, to come to His people as perfect fulfillment of all the Old Testament. He's perfect fulfillment of the law, the prophets, And He comes, not condemning, because He comes to fulfill the law on behalf of sinners and bestow upon us grace. Jesus comes down and saying, hey, you've given this a good go. You can't fulfill the law. I hope you see that. I am going to do it on your behalf. And then I will apply my perfection to you. That is grace. And so this means then, As believers, we don't have to work at fulfilling the law to please God. Jesus does that work. And He does it on our behalf. And Jesus comes as a mediator. As a better mediator between God and man. And so Jesus and His grace are eternally sufficient. Where we lacked in the law, grace would make up for what is lacking. Where Moses could not perfectly mediate, Jesus mediates as one who knows the Father face to face. And the glory of the Father that would have killed Moses is fully wrapped up and embodied in Jesus. That's why he says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Jesus, He has made Him known. So the grace of God comes visible, known, tangible. The image of the invisible God here, Jesus. This grace comes is the only God, that is the one and only, that is the unique Christ. That means there's no one like Him, never has been anyone like Him, will ever be anyone like Him. He is God. He is the channel of the Father's grace. He is the source of grace and truth. He is the one who makes it possible to see God. You want to see the Father? Then look at Jesus and you can see the Father. So life in His grace and truth. We have to stop trying to please God on our own. On our own terms, in our own ways. We have to stop. This is like trying to get to God in our own works. It just doesn't work, as redundant as that is. Instead, grace has come to us. Has come to us. He's saying, stop trying to scale the mountain. You can't make it up here. I will come down the mountain to you. And in fact, I will do all the work on your behalf for you, for your salvation. And I will give you my holiness. I'll give you my righteousness. I'll give you eternal life. I'll give you perfection. I'll give you glory. I'll give you all of these things. All you need to do is believe. That's it. I will do the work for you. And look, you and I have not seen Jesus like John the Apostle has seen Jesus. But the grace of God has come upon us. The glory of God is upon us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. We are witnesses then in the same way of the true light and never-ending grace of Christ. We are witnesses then through our lives. And so if that is true, then that means the glory of God is manifested inside of us. And if it is manifested inside of us, Christ in us, the hope of glory then the question becomes, the more practical question becomes, how is that grace being manifested from you to others? When you interact with your spouse, when you interact with your children, your co-workers, your fellow man, right? How is that truth and unending grace being manifested from you? Can people even see the grace and truth of Christ from you at all? And understand, you have the power residing in you to live this out. Not your own power. 
You have to lean in by faith on the power of the Spirit. So look, here's good news. We are children of God. And we are forever children of God. And so that means it is the same with His grace and the application of grace. This means we can never out-sin the grace of God. Paul talks about this in Romans. He doesn't say, well, every time we sin, grace increases, right? So just go ahead and keep on sinning. No, he doesn't say that. He's letting us know if we do sin, grace is going to come in and it's going to abound. And that should cause us to not want to sin anymore. But if we do sin, we have somebody, a mediator, somebody who stands in our place, an advocate, somebody who's not ashamed to call us brother. And so we must stop beating ourselves up every time we sin. Yes, we need to repent. Yes, we need to change. But we need to stop being so depressed and lowly every time we screw things up. It's not as though God is standing up in heaven going, man, I really wish you wouldn't have said that cuss word today. <laughs> You're not doing that. Because if we, if we have a grade card here, our grade card says fail, 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 fail. But Jesus comes in and He changes them all to A pluses. Right? When He looks at us, He's looking at Christ in us, the hope of glory. So what we can do is we repent of our sin and we turn into Christ and we believe that we have been washed over by His blood, washed over by His grace, and that we are free. If we don't lean in that grace, we will be enslaved to sin. We will be enslaved to our own self-deprecating thoughts. We will be enslaved to those things and never truly free. So take the chains off. Quit trying to put them back on. It's foolishness. Drop the chains. It's not about you or me. It's about Christ and His work and what He's done on our behalf. So today we've seen the true light. We've heard about the never-ending grace of Christ. So I want to remind you, it is important to know what is the true light and grace of Jesus. Because the world loves to manufacture light, and it loves to manufacture grace. And so it's easy for us, as broken people, right, to absorb manufactured light and absorb manufactured grace and confuse it to be true. We were talking about snow and light at the beginning, right? I love to ski. Skiing is fun for me. If I ever fall while I'm skiing, it'll probably be the last time I ski because my back will be done at that point. But while I can still stay upright, I love skiing. And if you've ever been skiing, there's a difference between real snow and fake snow. There's a huge difference, right? One is real, falling from the clouds. The other one is manufactured, being blown on the mountainside or the hill or whatever it is. And there's a difference in skiing in the midday sun and then also a difference in skiing at nighttime under manufactured lighting. And anyone who skis will tell you that there is a huge difference between real snow and fake snow. Because real snow is soft and fluffy. Fake snow, though it looks like real snow, is really like trying to ski on a snow cone. Right? It's like icy and choppy, and it's painful if you do fall. And so, manufactured snow, it looks real. Manufactured light, it seems legit, but it's only manufactured and can only go so far. can only go so far. The world provides manufactured light and manufactured grace that is not the true light and it is not the true grace. Manufactured meaning it's not fully true but partially true. It looks like snow. It's somewhat like snow. But it's not fully snow. And manufactured grace means it'll bring maybe some happiness and satisfaction for a time but only in part. It'll ultimately fail you completely. So today, where are you? Are you living and operating within the true light and never-ending grace? Or are you wandering around, maybe aimlessly, in manufactured light and manufactured grace? You can tell the difference, and the difference is based on faith. Do you have faith in Jesus, or do you have faith in other things? And so I want to call you to faith in Christ today, to living in the true light that gives life to your weary souls. 
I want to call you to faith in Jesus today, to the never-ending grace that falls like snow and washes over you wave after wave with a relentless and forever love. Church, your Savior has come. The light of the world, the Word made flesh, the full glory of God, the whole truth of the living God has come and has set up residence in your soul. For it is the grace of God that opens your eyes to the true light of Christ. And it is the true light of Christ that illuminates His never-ending grace.